take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 20. If you need a Bible, we are happy to provide those for you. There's um, some on either side of the room here. If you have one of those Bibles, you can turn to page 963. Uh, we, we have just two chapters left in John's Gospel, okay? Two chapters left in John's Gospel. We started going through John's Gospel last September. We will finish it up, Lord willing, next Sunday. Last week, we heard uh, of, of Jesus' uh, triumphant cry from the cross. You remember that? It is finished, right? He, his suffering was over because he had completed the work of redemption that the Father had sent him to do. And the, that work was the work of securing forgiveness for sinners and reconciling them to God through his perfect life of obedience to the Father and his sacrificial death on the cross. We needed Christ's righteousness and we needed Christ's payment, right? But John's gospel didn't end with Jesus' death for one very important reason, right? It wasn't just like Jesus said, it is finished, and John's like, so this is the gospel of John, right? This reason is that the cross was not the ultimate destination for Jesus. Yes, his glory was, was revealed there in a way that it had not yet been revealed through his life, but, but his, uh, that glory did not end there. It was not fully uh, uh, seen there at the cross or in the tomb. He had already told his disciples back in chapter 14 that he was returning to the Father, right? Remember what he prayed in John 17? Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ has always been glorious. We need to remember this. And he set aside uh, some of that glory in a sense by which he came and he put on humanity and humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory that I had with you before the world existed. John's concern is if we look at the cross of Jesus Christ without the resurrection, then we'll miss the fullness of Christ's glory. If, if John's gospel could be summarized in, in a word, it, it's glory. It, it's, he, is, he is all about showing us the glory of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, John's gospel is no gospel at all without the resurrection of Jesus. And this morning, through John's uh, resurrection account in chapter 20, we are going to see why Jesus' resurrection is of vital importance to us as well. Uh, this is God's word, and I want to pray uh, that he would use me and his spirit to teach his church this morning. Father, we're thankful for who you are. Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us your son, who is the living word. You've given us the scriptures that are your written word. You've given us your spirit that leads us into all truth, points us directly through your written word to your living word, Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that we would behold him in all his glory, in his risen glory, that we might be encouraged, changed, to be made more into his likeness. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, imagine that you're getting ready to go on a trip and you need to pack, right? Okay, this is a rhetorical question. I don't need, I don't need shouts of, of answers or, or things like that, but what are some essential items that you would put on your packing list, right? Things that you, that you can't live without, things that you need for the, the trip. If you could pack only one thing, yeah, some of you are like, what, just one? What would that thing be? If you had to narrow it down to the most essential thing, what would that thing be, that, the thing that would help you the most in your travels? 
See, sometimes we, we forget that life on this earth is actually a trip and not a destination. That we're just traveling through, right? And because we forget that, we also forget that there are essential things that we need to keep with us as we travel through this world to our final destination. Certainly, Jesus' finished work on the cross, uh, that work of redemption, is one of those things. John made that really clear for us last week. But here's what John is going to show us in chapter 20 this morning. This is the main point of, our, of, of the sermon. This is the, the main point of the passage here, is that everything essential for faith and life is anchored to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything essential for faith and life is anchored to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this passage, we're going to see a few things. We're going to see that Jesus' resurrection changes our perspective, that it secures our identity, it empowers our mission, and it answers our doubt. It changes our perspective, it secures our identity, it empowers our mission, and it answers our doubt. And it does all of these things because Jesus' resurrection ultimately proves Jesus' identity. All right? Let's dig in. Jesus' resurrection changes our perspective. John chapter 20, 1 through 10. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. She went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, that's how he refers to himself, and, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. That's an important note right there, right? John just has to make sure that you guys know that he won the race. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then following him, Simon Peter also came, and like Peter, did not wait. He entered the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there. The, the, the wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, seriously wants you to know this, then also went in, saw, and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Now, in verse 1, John notes that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, okay? In fact, all four, gospels, uh, all four gospel writers refer to the resurrection morning this way, the first day of the week. Back in chapter 2 of John's gospel, Jesus told the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, Right? Jesus was crucified on Friday and buried. Friday would be day one. Saturday would be day two. Sunday morning would be day three. Now, why is it then? Why didn't John just say, after three days, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb of Jesus? Why would he say, on the first day of the week? Because Jesus' resurrection changes our perspective. Changes our perspective. The first day of the week, signals a new beginning, a new beginning to the week, right? Jesus' resurrection signaled a new beginning. It's the dawning of the new creation in Christ. This is a paradigm shift here, something so important that it actually changed the day that believers gathered together on the Sabbath where they couldn't do work on Saturday, that they were to, to have a holy assembly. That holy assembly was shifted to Sunday morning after Jesus rose from the grave. The early church gathered on Sundays 
to worship Christ. This is why we are here right now on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, to worship our risen Savior. It's why we don't just celebrate Easter once a year on a Sunday morning, but every Sunday is a reminder for us that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen? One thing that we, or the only thing that we know about Mary Magdalene from John's gospel is that she was one of uh, four women standing by the cross during Jesus' crucifixion in chapter 19. That's where she was introduced to us. And now here we see that she was the first one to come to the tomb on the first day of the week. Now, the other gospel writers tell us that she wasn't alone when she came to the tomb, and John seems to indicate that here in verse 2 when Mary Magdalene says, we don't know where they've put him. Most likely, or, or John most likely singles out Mary Magdalene, though, here because of what comes next in verses 11 through 18, which we'll get to in a minute. John says that Mary came to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, if you've been following along with us in John's gospel, you know that the the, the theme, this contrast between darkness and light has been a major theme in John's gospel. So he's not just giving us a detail of what the day looked like, what the morning looked like. This is a, has a deeper meaning to it. He opened his gospel by saying that in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, John said, and yet darkness did not overcome it. Could there be any uh, truer example of that than resurrection morning? Mary herself was about to become an eyewitness to this reality, but she wasn't ready for it, right? She came with the other women with, with spices in their hands. They came uh, ready to finish the job that, that um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus started and then had to stop because the Sabbath came. They just got him into the tomb in time. They came to finish a, a, a preparing a body for a funeral. Mary didn't come to expect to find no body at all. When she took off running to go tell Simon, Peter, and John that the tomb was empty, she did so out of panic and not out of joy, not out of excitement. Now, grave robbery was, was common enough in that day that that was the first thing that she thought of when she saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. But when Peter and John got there and actually looked inside the tomb, they saw that Jesus' body was missing, but the burial cloths were still there. Now, we need to understand, these, these linens that Jesus was wrapped in, these spices that, he, that, that were prepared on his body, these were very expensive items. If you're a grave robber doing a smash and grab job, you're, you're not going to leave those things behind. That's more valuable than the body itself. Matthew tells us in his gospel that the chief priest bribed the Roman guards to start a rumor. And this rumor was that Jesus' disciples came and stole his body at night while the guards were still sleeping. They didn't want people to believe that there was a resurrection. But if this were the case, if the disciples really came and stole Jesus' body, again, time was a constraint for them, or would have been, right? They wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap Jesus from the, from the burial cloths and then fold one up and set it aside. No, they're trying to get in and out of there as quickly as they can without being detected, Right? The chief priest wanted to discredit the reality of the resurrection and convince people that it was made up. But John's account here and the accounts of the other gospel writers actually prove the authenticity of it. Listen, if John was making this up, first of all, he would not make Mary Magdalene the prominent figure in this scene. Because in that day, a woman's testimony was inadmissible in, in a Jewish court. It would have immediately drawn red flags. If he's fabricating this, 
This is not convincing anybody. John wouldn't include Mary Magdalene unless that's actually how it happened and he was just reporting the facts. You can't make this up. He also wouldn't undermine himself if he was going to make this up. If you're trying to convince somebody of something, you need to be convincing, right? You don't want them to question you. It's clear here that neither John nor Peter were expecting the resurrection any more than Mary Magdalene was in this moment. John actually admits in verse 9 that he didn't believe until he looked in the tomb and saw the linens there without Jesus' body lying in them. And then he also admits in verse 10 that at that point, his belief in the resurrection was because of what he saw in the tomb, not because of what he saw in the scriptures. They didn't see it coming. They just saw it happen, or they just saw that it had happened, right? They didn't fully understand the Old Testament predictions yet. Excuse me. But John's understanding of the scriptures grew as his faith in the resurrected, resurrected Christ grew, aided again by the indwelling Holy Spirit that Christ promised to send. This is why we're reading this gospel. Most of the New Testament was written by the time John wrote this gospel, and it's clear from the entire New Testament that everything pivots on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, we, we read part of 1 Corinthians this morning as we prayed together. Again, further into that, Paul tells us that if Christ had not been raised, has not been raised, then our faith is worthless. We're dead in our sins. We actually are calling God a liar because that's what we're proclaiming, Paul says, that God has raised him from the dead. If Jesus is still dead in a tomb in Jerusalem, then his sacrifice on the cross means nothing. He said that he would rise from the dead. He he said that to the disciples. We heard this in John's gospel. If Jesus did not rise as he said he would, what does that make Jesus? It makes him a liar. And if he's a liar, then he's a sinner who needs a savior, not a savior who saves sinners. He's a savior or a, a sinner who needs forgiveness, not one who can provide it right? And if he can raise Lazarus from the grave, like we saw in chapter 11, but he can't walk out of the tomb himself, then his death on the cross was in vain. Why? Because if Jesus does not have ultimate power over death itself, then we have no good reason to assume that he has ultimate power to forgive our sins. But Jesus' resurrection changes our perspective, right? It's the lens now through which we view everything else. It means that he's not a liar. It means that he does have the power to forgive our sins. It means that death is not the end for us because death was not the end for Jesus Christ. It means that the realities of this broken life will not always be the norm that we've grown accustomed to. We've gotten used to death, haven't we? That's not the norm. Jesus' resurrection means that things like sin and death and fear and corruption and pain and heartache will all one day die themselves. They will all one day come to an end. His resurrection enables us to see this life for what it is, temporary. Temporary. So we travel through this temporary life in full assurance of the gloriously eternal life to come. Jesus' resurrection changes our perspective. How is it changing yours? Jesus' resurrection also secures our identity. Look at verse 11 through 18. 
But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped into the, to look into the tomb, and she t- saw two angels in white sitting there where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Mary stayed at the tomb after Peter and John left. She was so distraught over the fact that Jesus' body was missing that she didn't even realize that she was, when she stooped to look in, that she was actually talking to two angels. And even more so, she, when she turned around and she, she saw Jesus standing there, she didn't, didn't recognize him either. Now, it, it, you've, we've all ugly cried at some point, right? Because we've been so distraught. You know how hard it is to see through tears. You, you know that, that sometimes it, it just, the, the overwhelming sense of, of uh, grief that you feel, it just, it distorts you it, or uh, disorients you, right? She didn't recognize his voice even as he spoke to her the first time. Isn't he so gracious? Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? You know, the last time he asked that question was when he was being betrayed in a garden. And now here he is in a garden tomb being ready to restore and bring someone else into his kingdom. She thought he was the gardener, and in a sense, she was right. You see, Jesus is the greater Adam. We sang this this morning. He's the true and better Adam, right? He succeeded where the first gardener failed. And now Jesus is the gardener of the new creation, the one who will restore the paradise that was lost when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. But Mary had no idea that that was the case in this moment. She was still frantic because she was looking for a dead body, not a living man. She had loved Jesus dearly. He had rescued her from bondage to darkness and cast seven demons out of her, according to Luke's gospel. In John chapter 10, we saw that the good shepherd calls his sheep by name and they follow him because they know his voice. That's exactly what happened here. What did he say to her? Mary. He called her by name. And as soon as Mary heard her name, she immediately recognized her shepherd and all of her despair was gone. Now, what's the first thing you would do if you thought that someone that you loved was dead and then you realized that they were actually alive? You found them alive. You'd cling to them, wouldn't you? You'd run up and hug them so tight and you would never let them go. This is what happened here. Mary probably fell to her face on the ground and, and wrapped her arms around Jesus' feet in reverence and awe of her Rabboni, which means teacher, right? This is how she knew him. But probably also out of this sense, like, please don't leave me again. Don't, don't go away. 
And Jesus graciously reassured her that she didn't have to hold on so tightly, right? He's going to ascend to the Father, but not yet. First, the others needed to know that he was alive. And he told Mary, go to, go to my brothers and tell them that I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Let's look at the progression here. Jesus went from calling his disciples servants in chapter 13 to friends in chapter 15 and now to brothers here in chapter 20. He set himself apart as the unique son of God here by saying my father and my God instead of our father and our God. But he, in calling them his brothers, he was also including them into this family of God. And not only them, but Mary as well. She wasn't just the messenger. She was a participant. In John chapter one, Jesus, or, uh, John said to all who receive him, that being Jesus, to all who believe in his name, Jesus gave them the right to be called what? Children of God. By God's grace, Mary Magdalene was not only the first person to see and hear and touch the risen Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, she was also the first person to proclaim this good news of his resurrection to others. Is that not grace? Is that not grace? By God's grace, she had gone from being a demon-possessed woman to a daughter of God and a sister to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is incredible, amazing grace. Jesus' resurrection secures our identity as his brothers and sisters and as sons and daughters in the family of God. Listen to how the author of Hebrews puts it. In Hebrews 2, 10 through 17, it says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory... It was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common. Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not help out angels. You notice those two angels weren't worried in the tomb. It's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. That's why he put on flesh, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Listen, Jesus suffered and died and rose from the dead to bring us into the family of God forever. That means that if you're a follower of Christ, you're no longer defined by your past or your present or your future sins. Those things don't define you anymore. You're no longer, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, a child under wrath. Why? Because Jesus took your place. He drank the cup. He absorbed the wrath for you. You've been given a new identity as a child of God. And a place in glory has been reserved for you. Why? Because your brother, Jesus Christ, has made atonement for your sins through his death on the cross. And he's freed you from the fear of death through his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection secures our identity in him. 
And it also empowers our mission. Look at verse 19 through 23. When it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Remember when he promised them, right now you'll have mourning, but soon you will rejoice. Here it is. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Even though Mary Magdalene had told them that she had seen the Lord and told them that what he had said to her, it's apparent here that these disciples did not immediately believe her. We're told that in uh, uh, other gospel accounts. They were hiding out behind locked doors on Easter Sunday evening because they were afraid that now that Jesus was out of the way, the chief priests would, would turn their sights on them and come after them. If they could kill Jesus, they could kill us. This is what they're thinking. Text doesn't tell us whether Jesus passed through locked doors or, miracul- or the doors miracul- miraculously unlocked on their own and he walked into the room. That, that really actually doesn't matter. What matters is he was outside the room and now he's inside the room. And he's risen from the dead, right? That's what matters. What it does tell us is that the risen Jesus came, he stood among them, and he said to them, peace be with you. Now that was a common greeting of that day. But this was an uncommon circumstance, yeah? They knew that Jesus had died. John himself actually was a witness to it. In chapter 19, we saw him standing there at the cross with the women. But suddenly Jesus was standing in their midst, and now he needed to convince them that he wasn't a ghost. And so he showed them the wounds from his crucifixion and and then said again, peace be with you, right? Shalom. We've seen this before in John's gospel. He was reminding them of the peace that he promised them before he was betrayed. You remember chapter 14, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. They're hiding behind locked doors. They're troubled. They're fearful. And in chapter 16, he said, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, Jesus said. Be courageous, because I've conquered the world. In between those two statements, in chapter 14 and 16, Jesus promised to send them his Holy Spirit. Here he breathed on them, much like God breathed on Adam and brought him to life and uh, and placed him in the garden to tend it. By breathing on the disciples, Jesus was establishing this new creation and this new mission empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. The sent one, the one that John has made very clear, he came from the Father. The sent one has now become the sending one. And he was preparing his disciples to be apostles, which means sent ones, who would spread this good news of the gospel to the nations. These verses are John's version of the Great Commission and a precursor to what we'll see in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is actually sent to dwell in the believers. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus was not giving these apostles the authority to determine who should and should not be forgiven of their sins. That authority rests in God and God alone. But through the Holy Spirit, these apostles were sent out 
to proclaim the gospel message that declares the, the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. What they did have the authority was to preach this gospel and declare that God forgives those who believe in Jesus and he does not forgive those who reject Jesus. This is the gospel. And this is exactly the message that John has been proclaiming to the readers of his gospel here over and over. This is the message that you and I as followers of Christ, as sons and daughters of God, have been called to proclaim to those around us. We're we're ambassadors of reconciliation. We plead with people to be reconciled to God through belief in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't get to walk around and go, you can be forgiven and you can't. We have a gospel message that that lays it out perfectly clear for everyone. We may suffer for proclaiming this gospel. We may even die for it. But we must be convinced, as Paul is, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for those who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. We must be convinced that people will be saved through the proclamation of this gospel. And when we're convinced of that, we'll proclaim it ourselves. We don't need to fear anyone in the world because Jesus has conquered the world. We don't even actually need to fear death, although if we're honest, it's, it's a little scary, right? We'd probably behind, be behind those locked doors too. We don't need to fear death though because Jesus has conquered death. Instead, we can have the peace, the shalom of our risen Lord and the power of the indwelling spirit as we go and proclaim this gospel of peace to a troubled and fearful world and trust that Christ himself will come, enter through the locked doors of their hardened hearts, stand among them and show them his sacrifice and draw them to faith and repentance. Jesus' resurrection empowers our mission. It also answers our doubt. Look at verse 24 through 29. But Thomas, called twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, if I don't put my finger into the mark of those nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe. A week later, His disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, (laughs) still locked, right? Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, we like to give Thomas a hard time, don't we? We like to pick on him a little bit, give him a nickname. We call him Doubting Thomas, right? But let's not forget that the other disciples had their own doubts, even as Mary Magdalene told them, until they saw Jesus themselves. Even after they saw Jesus, they still locked the doors, right? I recently heard one pastor say, we should call him Believing Thomas instead of Doubting Thomas because he's actually a wonderful example to us. And the more I looked at this passage, the more I'm inclined to agree. Let's just, let's just try to understand Thomas for a minute. He was a Jew, and Jews believed 
in the God who performed miracles. They believed in the God who parted the Red Sea, who, who drove Israel out of Egypt through a bunch of plagues, who, who provided manna in the wilderness for them and water from a rock. These things don't happen naturally. They believed in this God. Thomas knew that God was able to perform miracles, but he also believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And in Thomas's mind, the Messiah is not supposed to die. He didn't understand that from the scriptures either, just like John and Peter and the rest of them. He was reeling from disappointment. He devoted his entire life to Jesus, and now this Jesus was dead. And even though the other disciples told him that they had seen Jesus alive, an entire week had gone by since Easter Sunday, and Thomas still hadn't even caught a glimpse of the risen Lord. Eight days later, a week later, it says, if we were in Thomas's sandals, we would probably want some tangible proof too, right? It was like pics or it didn't happen, right? In grace, Jesus came and he appeared to Thomas the same way that he appeared to the other disciples a week earlier. And, and you know what he didn't say? He didn't come in and say, Thomas, man, what's your problem? Get with the program. It's been a week, dude. No. He said, hey, come here. Look at my wounds. Put your finger here. Stick your hand here. Thomas, it's me. It's me. Don't be faithless. Believe. Now, Jesus wasn't being harsh with Thomas, but he was being direct. Listen, Thomas didn't need a stronger faith. Thomas needed actual faith. And Thomas responded to Jesus' loving rebuke with a faith-filled confession that may be the clearest and, and simplest claim of Jesus' deity, not only in John's gospel, but in the entire New Testament, my Lord and my God. John started his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he ended the prologue, this beginning of his gospel, by saying, listen, nobody's ever seen God the one and only Son who is himself God is at the Father's side and he has revealed him. John began his gospel by telling us Jesus is God and now here toward the end of the gospel we have Thomas saying Jesus is my God. Is he your God? Thomas's confession must be our confession. Each of us must look at Christ and continue to say, my Lord and my God, is this your confession? If not, then, then I beg you to listen to Jesus' own words here. Don't be faithless. Believe. Maybe you're looking for the kind of proof that Thomas wanted. You say, man, is a, this is a stretch for me. How can I believe in something that happened 2,000 years ago when I wasn't even there? If Jesus is really risen from the dead, that means he's alive right now. Why doesn't he just come to me? Why doesn't he just appear to me now like he did to the disciples back then? You might say with Thomas, if I don't see the mark of the nails in Jesus' hands, if I don't put the, my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will never believe. But you, you need to see that Jesus does not put you at a disadvantage here. He said, blessed, blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet believe. Thomas, you're blessed because you've seen me and, and you believe. But guess what? Those who've never seen me and yet still believe, they're blessed too. How can Jesus say this? Because in chapter 17, he prayed for all who would not see him, but who would come to faith, come to believe in him through the eyewitness testimony of those who had seen him, these disciples. He prayed that we would be completely one with him and the Father and one with one another, that we would share in the love that the Father has for the Son, that we would be with Jesus where he is and that we would see his glory. All of this is guaranteed to us when the Holy Spirit comes to us and opens the eyes of our heart that we might see the grace of God and believe in Jesus Christ. We're blessed when we believe in Jesus even though we have not seen Jesus. Why? Because one day our faith will become sight. The Apostle Peter captures this reality so beautifully. In 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice. You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, John wants you to believe in Jesus. That's why he wrote about the resurrection because Jesus' resurrection ultimately proves Jesus' identity. Let's close this out in verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Listen, everything that, was, that John has written about in his gospel, including and especially the resurrection, is for this purpose right here, that you may believe who Jesus really is. Without the resurrection, Jesus is nothing more than a, a good teacher who can only offer us a moral example to follow. That's it. But the resurrection proves that he's actually far more than a good teacher. He really is the Messiah of God. He really is the Son of God. And the kind of belief that John wants us to have is this ongoing belief. These things were written so that you may believe and keep believing. This is what he says here in the Greek. That you confess and you keep confessing Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. What does John say that we get when we believe in the resurrected Son of God? We get to be resurrected with him. We get life in Jesus' name. Life from death, eternal life. See, everything essential for faith and life is anchored to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's something you, you just, we have to understand. When you walk out of here today, if you don't remember anything else, you need to know this. This is the reality. Whether you believe in Christ or not, that does not change the reality that life on this earth is a trip and not a destination. You'll never find what you're looking for here. Your time on this planet will end in death, and you'll be resurrected either to life, to, to live forever apart from Christ in eternal judgment for your rejection of him, or to live forever with Christ in eternal forgiveness because you believe in him. And I want you to hear me this morning. Like John, I want you to believe. 
I don't have the authority to stand up here and say, you get to be forgiven and you don't. I get to proclaim this beautiful gospel message and trust God to stir hearts toward his resurrected son. I want you to have life in Jesus' name. Jesus' resurrection changes our perspective. It secures our identity. It empowers our mission, and it answers our doubt. And it does all these things because Jesus' resurrection really proves Jesus' identity. He really is the Messiah. He really is the Son of God. He really did die on the cross for sinners, and he really did rise from the dead in order that we too might truly live. Don't travel through this life without the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is the one thing that we cannot live without. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have not told us once, but many times in your word, through the New Testament writers, through the gospel writers, that Jesus Christ is fully alive. The death did not win that Christ is victorious and he will be victorious. The death will one day lose its sting forever because Christ is on the throne. We pray this morning, Lord, that you would uh, stir in our hearts a deeper sense of belief in Christ. For those that do not believe in him yet or have not believed in him yet, I pray this morning is the day, is the, is the day of their resurrection, that they believe in Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and that for those of us who have put our faith and our hope, anchored it to this reality of the risen Jesus, that this morning you would stir in our hearts a deeper joy, knowing what's to come, where we get to be with you forever. We thank you for this grace that is unexplainable, immeasurable, wonderful. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.